Um, so let's pray, and then we will get going on this very convicting uh, last chapter on who is God as we finish with the Father and his work. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, humbled that we are going to speak of you today. Uh, humbled that we will speak of your work. Humbled that that work is expected of us uh, in a different way, but imitating you. And we pray for the help and strength we need for that, for the uh, work of the Son in our lives, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we ask for this kind of humility, this kind of change, so that we might be able to be imitators of our God. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right. One of the difficult things of this particular study, uh, when we studied last week on who the person of the Father is, that was pretty convicting, at least to me anyway, as a father. But this is even worse. Because um, there's so much work of the Father that I narrowed it down for our purposes to just his covenantal work. Um, you could call it his, his work in salvation. I like to call it covenantal work because that's the covenant um, of redemption that we're going to be looking at and what he was responsible for in that, or what is responsible for. And the difficult thing is we're going to see that this kind of work of the Father isn't just interesting. You understand what I mean by that? Uh, the, the difficulty of Scripture um, is that it's never just theoretical, uh, no matter how much seminaries want it to be, right? Uh, the most difficult thing about going to seminary was realizing that you are surrounded by probably some of the most intelligent people you'll, you'll ever meet who know probably more than you'll ever know and that can rattle off uh, ideas and concepts just off the top of their head. It's amazing. And in no way should they ever be behind a pulpit. <laughs> it's, uh, so the theoretical they get. They're probably even good communicators. Uh, but in their lives, they have not connected what it means to imitate the God that they have in their brain. Uh, the Puritans had a good understanding of what it means to head, heart, hand. So you had a great understanding of the Lord so that your heart would change, so that your, uh, your uh, uh, actions would change. Um, all that was connected at one time. But now we have seminaries that are divorced from churches, and so it's not their job to know about your heart. Those written tests don't test your heart or your behavior. You can go home and be a giant failure and be one of the up-and-coming people in the world of theology. So, I say all that to say, today we're not just going over the work of the Father so we can find some interesting things about the Lord's work or the Father's work. Uh, we're doing this because this is something that we have to deal with in our own lives. So let's begin. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. 
<coughs> the book of Ephesians is an amazing book. All you have to do is read it, and it cures you, cures you of any kind of uh, Arminianism or anything like that. It just kind of rips it all away. Uh, and I think that's what it's been used for, typically. Um, when people start arguing about uh, God being um, in control and people needing free will because the philosophers have told us we need it, we usually go to Ephesians and say, look. And of course, they try to explain it away and things like that. And that's kind of usually where the argument is over Ephesians. And that's fine. But one thing we kind of overlook in Ephesians is that it tells you a lot about the Father. Um, one of the <coughs> one of the things you're going to find as we read through to chapter to verse ten is that there's a lot of hymns in it. Uh, the pronoun, him. And what's difficult about that is that you're not sure if the him is referring to Jesus or if the him is referring to the Father, and it does get confusing. We're going to have to deal with that. But just stay with us, and you'll uh, I think we'll see how it can be clear. Starting with verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. Obviously this is now talking about Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, according to his kind intention, which he uh, pro proposed in him. Sorry, I just lost my place. In him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all the things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. All right. Now. Again, I realize there's a lot of pronouns in there where it gets a little murky. But I would say if we look closely, we can see where it's talking about the Father and his kind intention. Um, if we look at verse 3, this one's easy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who are we talking about? The Father, right? Who, speaking back to the Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, and he did this in Christ. 
Okay? So your first blank there, if you're doing the notes. The Father is the one who blesses his people. Now, blessing, we got to make this clear, too. Uh, blessing has kind of, have, kind of lost a lot of its meaning in our culture. We all know the triteness of being hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> and uh, just, you know, I got all green lights today on my way to work, and I thought I was going to be late, and I turned out not to be. I am blessed. And if green lights on our way to work is our, you know, is the bar of whether I'm blessed or not, I would say, this is ironic, uh, strange, but I'd say our bar is not high enough. Okay, so being blessed isn't just a, um, a thing where you would get through, it'd be a little harder, but being blessed means God made it easier. <laughs> we lose our understanding of this even when it talks about in, in the covenant that God made with Abraham, which is brought up again in uh, Galatians, another book that you can't read through without realizing being reformed is important, um, is this idea that he said, through you, through Abraham, all nations, and if we look at that Hebrew closely, really all families will be blessed. What are they talking about? Well, is he saying that, well, families would, you know, they'd do okay. But now through you, uh, they're going to do really well because now they'll be comfortable. <laughs> you, you, have to, you have to define it into what God talks about where there's common grace and there is special grace. Yes. And those distinctions are quite different. Right. And they, common grace... God gives to all, mm -hmm. but his special grace, the grace that came from Christ Jesus, the blood that washed our sins away, that is special grace. Yes. And I would even say this, even common grace is grace not just for the unsaved to live. It is grace that they get to live um, a life that has some pleasure in it uh, before they die and are judged. But there is good evidence that, that even that grace is designed for graciousness to his people. Where that grace is to subdue their sin. Not just for their sake, but especially for ours. So, you're right. So, we have to get past, okay, what kind of um, grace is the kind of blessing that this is talking about? And this kind of blessing that is derived from uh, Abraham, the covenant with Abraham is a blessing of your very salvation. And this is where it gets, I don't think it's confusing, I think it's, it helps us get more clear. It's just hard to grasp it. I think we talked about this before. Um, who are you... Um, when someone says you're being saved, like, I got saved when I was X, or I was saved, I'm a born-again person, I'm saved. What are you saved from? Well, let me put it this way. Let me ask you this way. 
to the typical American, right? Who, who, if you were just to go around, let's say the South, and say, you, you know, do you go to church? You go, you, you better go to church. And they're like, they go to church. And you were say, are you saved? They're like, you bet I'm saved. What do they think they're saved from? Well, uh, hell. hell. I feel like I'm on the Price is Right. Um, ten dollars? Okay, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yes, hell, right? But I think what they don't realize is hell is the baseball bat. Let me give you this uh, this idea. If you're on your way to the car late at night in a very dark parking lot and you're alone and you're on your way and you, you know every TV show or movie you've ever seen where someone goes to their car and you know some horrible thing happens starts going through your mind it's like when you have to fly in an airplane anyway uh-huh. that's, that's something else um, so you're on your way to the car you know you kind of hear sounds you're not sure what's going on and you know you have your keys uh, you start thinking, okay, if I put my keys through my fingers, would that really hurt if I punch someone like that? And so, okay, so you're, you're trying to think of these things, you know, you, but you're cool. You're cool, right? You don't want people to think you're afraid. So you're walking, you're cool, but you got your keys all like, how can I hold this so I can punch? Okay, so, um, and you walk by and you get to your car, you put your, well, I guess you don't put your key in there unless you're, you have Danny's car. Uh, but uh, you, you beep the thing. And you see a baseball bat laying right next to your car. You're like, what is that doing there? And you get in your car and you drive away. Are you afraid of the baseball bats? Like, you go to Dick's Sporting Goods and you're walking by and you see a baseball bat. Whoa, baseball bats. Are you afraid of them? Okay, probably not. If you're on your way to your car late at night and you're like kind of freaking out a little bit and then a, you know, six foot five, 300 pound muscle bound guy is holding the bat looking at you like this. Uh, then, then you're afraid of a baseball bat, right? I mean, maybe you, you're all looking at me like, I wouldn't be afraid. Because maybe you guys know karate. Or, um, so, <laughs> there's none of you look like you. You're sitting there like, I wouldn't be afraid. No, not me. Um, yes, the person that has the bat. Because you know what kind of damage can be done when someone is muscle bound and has that look in their eye, that dead look. <laughs> It's the same. It's that same troubling analogy that we have in our culture today. It's not the gun that kills; it's the people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so the baseball bat is only as you're only afraid of a baseball bat as who is holding it, and whether they have that dead look in their eye, like they've just made a decision. Okay. (laughs) So. So when with your with your answer was is what it should be. They're saved, not from just hell. Hell's the baseball bat, right? They're saved from the wrath of God. The power and the presence of God's wrath that is in hell is what is terrifying. Um, I've heard people say, well, hell is the absence of God. It is not. That's what makes it so scary. It is absolutely the presence of God. It's the presence of his wrath, the presence of his anger that never ends. Whether or not we choose to have an eternity of grace with him or choose to have an eternity of 
of his wrath. Yeah. So you are being saved. And this is where it gets even more distressing. By the Father's wrath, particularly. By the Father's wrath, particularly. The Father is the one who blesses. He is saving us through His blessing, through His Son, from His own wrath against us. And He pours it out on His Son. Uh, Let's uh, keep reading. So not only is He the one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So that means in Christ comes your uh, justification, your sanctification, your adoption, the glory, all is in Christ. Okay, so how, how is it possible for someone to get saved? The Holy Spirit gives you the faith. And you are bonded with Christ, right? And in Christ are all those blessings, the, the uh, justifications, sanctification, adoption, which of course melts your heart immediately, causes you to repent. It's all this, um, it all happens at the same time, but has a logical order. It's all, but it's all in Christ, we can say that. So if we look at verse 4, so these, these blessings that are in Christ, just as he chose us in him. So now we have two, two he's, but I think we can parse them because who's the in him? Who's the him and the in him? Christ. Okay, so then who's the first he? The Father. Yes, just as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Okay? Before Him. And so we have the Father doing the choosing. Um, We know this also in John chapter 6. We'll look at that a little later. But the Father chooses. The Father is the one who chooses. So he is the one who blesses those he has chosen to bless, to save them from the wrath from him, from the Father. So the Father, in his justice, looks at sin. We have to understand, maybe after we talk about Christ, we'll talk about us, right? Sin is not this thing that grows on you, right? Sin is not mold. Does that make sense? That otherwise you're a good person, it's just that you got some mold of sin on you. And according to the Catholic tradition, if you're baptized, the mold comes off, at least long enough for you to please God. Right? The mold might come back on, but you can wipe it off again through going back to the priest and uh, having him do that for you. Does that make sense? That's the Catholic view of sin. And uh, the Reformers, Luther particularly, was trying to demonstrate that sin is not a mold that gets on an otherwise good person. Sin is the person. 
God is not unjust in that everyone got a little mold on them. They would have been good people, but they got the mold of sin on them, and now God's mad at them. It does, that is not what is talked about in Scripture. What's talked about in Scripture is that you are the sin. And God is just in his wrath against you. And through something that we have no, no idea how to answer to, he chose to bless. Um, so do you think that um, Pilgrim's Progress has a, doesn't have a good view of like having that burden on you? Kind of, kind of like the mold, but bigger? Um, oh, like the burden? Yeah. Um, I don't want to... It's a lot heavier. Yeah, I, I would say that... Analogy stories are difficult because analogies always fall a little short. Um, I don't want to condemn Bunyan. I'd rather save that for C.S. Lewis. But, no, he was fine. It's just, uh, you know, he had some bad ideas and he put them in his stories. Um, but, it, I mean, analogies are tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bunyan did the best he could. Yeah, um, and that's a good point. Um, I think there's some te- there's some of the text that kind of indicates that all that burden is from Pilgrim, um, and so I think that kind of helps bridge that gap a little bit. But yeah, analogies are tough. <laughs> all right, um, turn to John six. Let's talk about John six very quickly. Um, oh, it's got to be quickly. Okay, so we got to move. I knew I'd spend too much time. John six twenty seven. This is Christ talking, um, dealing with the Pharisees and um, different questions he was getting that were disingenuous, of course. Um, so he says. Uh, Let's start at 26. Jesus answered them saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, speaking to the Pharisees, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, What shall we do so that we may uh, work the works of God? Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent, speaking of the Father. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Um, Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. So what we see here is the Father had the authority, that's one blank there, to... uh, um, 
had, uh, gives the authority to the Son to be our God mediator. We see that in 27. Okay? Um, for, uh, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So that setting of the seal is the authority of the Father giving that authority to the Son to be the God mediator to his people. Okay? The Father, and the next one there is the Father seals us with the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to see here is the Father is the giver of the authority. Um, remember in John 1, 12, to, uh, let me make sure I don't just try and quote it wrong. Uh, but as many as received him, speaking of us, to them he gave the right, and or the Greek there is the authority, to become children of God, even to those that believe in his name. The Father is the one who is giving the authority. He is sealing. He seals his Son to be the mediator. He seals us with the Holy Spirit that we might be children of his. Does that make sense? What I want to get across here is he's the one that's giving. He's the, it's coming from him. Um, so the Father, 632, uh, in John 632, let me read that. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses that has given you the bread of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. What's the true bread out of heaven? Christ. Christ. So the Father is the one who gives us Christ. Right? He's the one who sent the Son. I'm saying all this because I think sometimes in our Americana Christianity, if I can put it that way, we get the idea that Jesus was, or Christ was, um, in a way, saying, I want to, if I can try and put this in a way that, that Christ sees the Father's wrath and says, Hey, I'm going to, through my will, be the one that gets in the way of your wrath. As if there's some kind of weird... Debate. What was that? Debate. Yeah, like there's a debate. That's a good way of thank you. Like there was some kind of debate. Like the Father's angry. He's like, I'm going to kill them all. And Jesus says, No, wait! My will is to be the sacrifice. That is not what Scripture says. In fact, when we get to the point where Christ is about to be, uh, is about to be sacrificed on that cross in the garden, he says, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. The sender is the Father. He sends the Son. It's His will. And this is, the, this is the part I really want us to get across. It's not that the Father was angry and the Son said, No, wait, stop. Right? The Father was angry and the Father said, This is what I will do for my people. I will send my Son. Do you understand how that works? 
Okay. So the father is the one who gives the son uh, for his people. The father is the one who gives his people to the son. If we look at verse 37 of, of John 6. All, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the, this is the difficult part for people that hold on to John 3.16 as some kind of free will verse. It's a very covenantal verse. It's giving you the, this is what the covenant looks like. Covenant looks like the Father, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And this is the conditions of the covenant. Whoever believes in the Son will not have eternal wrath, but have eternal life. Those are the conditions of the covenant. Well, who's included in the covenant? I'll tell you who's included in the covenant. Uh, whoever the Father gives the Son. Those are included in the covenant. Does that make sense? Um, if you don't look at Scripture as a covenantal document, you will misunderstand a lot of it. If you look at it as some kind of logical document where you can take pieces of it, make logical sense out of this piece, and ignore the other pieces, we come into all kinds of problems. So, the Father is the one um, who gives his people to the Son, and the Father is the one who wills the covenant to save his people. He is the one behind the, he is the will behind the covenant. We see that in 39 through 40, where it says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up. On the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So, what's the will behind the covenant? It's the Father's will that those that he gives his Son will be raised on the last day. So, what we find especially in Ephesians, back to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, um, as we see the Father does this, He wills the covenant, He sends His Son, He does all these, all these things, look at verse 4, in love He predestined us. Not in obligation, not in He felt bad, in love. He... Uh, so the Father does this in love for his people. And the Father even makes known his will to the people, we see in verse 9 of, of Ephesians 1. He made this will made known to us. So what we see, that next blank there on the new section, the work of the Father is the work of fatherhood. This is what was convicting me as I thought about these things, is the work of fatherhood is that of provision. Provision. Providing isn't just money. Although that is important because Scripture tells us that a man that doesn't supply for his family is worse than an infidel. Um, 
But there's more to it than that. In fatherhood, imaging the father means fathers bless. Um, In the Old Testament, the blessing of the father was very important. Um, And a lot of times it meant land or it meant, you know, inheritance of some sort. And the question is, how are we fathers blessing our family? When the father blessed his people, he blessed them through a salvation. And even in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is where it gets really hard for us to grasp this. Not Ephesians 6, I'm sorry, it's Ephesians 5. Um, Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she would be holy and blameless. How are we blessing our family as fathers? Are we blessing our households so that our households stand before our God spotless and without wrinkle because of our sacrifice for them? That is convicting to me because I find it hard sometimes I mean, sometimes, most of the time. Just to lead my family in a simple few minutes at the end of the day. uh, With my kids to read the word and sing a song. I mean, the bar isn't even that high. And I find that difficult to bless my family with the washing of the word because I'm supposed to present my family in a certain way. Imaging the father means fathers choose. There is choosing going on in our families. In a way, our family is our people. And there is a choosing going on of this is, these are my people. Does that make sense? How am I going to lead my people? Imaging the father means fathers give authority. The son had authority because the father gave him authority. And I don't want to argue over, you know, what that means in covenantal terms as opposed to the ontological trinity, that's not really my focus right now. My focus is that that's what the Father did through the Son. And part of the work of a Father is giving authority. We give authority, which means the authority that we do give in our family um, might be exercised in our family, but Do the people in your family recognize that authority comes from you? 
That's the difficult thing. Christ did not take the authority from the Father and said, okay, now I'm in charge and my Father no longer matters or is in charge. Christ had all authority when he said, not my will, but your will be done. So Christ, even when given authority, recognizes from whom the authority originates. Is that how our family looks? Or have we given up authority because really we're not authoritative? Um, I, I knew a, uh, a church once where I was giving, we were having this thing called Man Up in our church because our church, at that particular church, needed it really bad. And their favorite thing to do during these times where I would meet with these men would to be bringing up men that would abuse their wives. Yeah, that's really bad. That's bad use of authority. They loved bringing up men that abused their authority over their wives. Men that were abusive psychologically, men that were abusive physically, and they brought it up all the time. Why do you think they kept bringing that up? That was worse than what they were doing. Yeah. Because that's really bad. So when I go home and I'm ruled over my wife, uh, I, can, I can say, you know, I'm not abusive. In fact, I'm so not abusive. Excuse me. <laughs> I, am, I am a little cowardly man, right? Because when you are abusing your authority by giving it up and having no authority, it makes you feel real good when you start talking about those guys that abuse their authority the other way. Right? And I tried to remind them this is not what your problem is in this church, though. You guys are not abusing your wives physically. Um, you're terrified of them. Right? That's another problem where you have given up authority and the people that have taken the authority have no belief that it stems from you or that you have that authority in your family. Imaging the father means fathers make their will known to their people. Uh, anyone will tell you the thing that breaks down the fastest in a, in a marriage is communication. And usually it breaks down especially on what you plan for your family because you don't have a plan. Uh, typically, we men, um, in our sin, are happy when there is peace in the home, not when there's plan in the home. Does that make sense? When wifey is happy, uh, there is peace. And we think, that's how I know when things are going well. Because I have peace in the home. She's not mad at me. Um, she seems to be okay. And so things are going well. I'm a good dad. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband because uh, she seems to be happy. She seems to be okay. And we think that's what success is. We don't make our will known. And we think if she's happy or we're all getting along, that's what good is. So we call it peace. We say, well, peace is good. What makes our wives feel so unstable and feel like they need to take charge is because you have no charge in your home, right? 
This happens to me all the time. I have no plan for my family, and so I don't make that plan known because there is no plan. The plan is for wifey to be happy, kids not to do things that scare me, and then I'm good. Right? And obviously that lasts for moments at a time, right? There's moments where wifey is happy, kids haven't done anything that scares me to death. But it doesn't last, right? When the father has a plan, and he makes that plan known, it brings stability to the home. It makes your wife feel like you know what you're doing. And it makes her feel like, maybe I don't have to run up and be in charge because this guy seems to act like he knows what he's doing. He has this plan for our home, and he's made the plan known to us. And it makes us feel secure. I'll tell you this. Even if wifey doesn't like the plan, at least there's something not to like instead of making her feel like we're just going headlong into darkness and we have no idea what we're doing, but let's just go. That's scary to them. No wonder they stand up and take charge because there is no charge in the home. When we communicate to our family as fathers, this is the will of my of my my hopes for this family, and this is how I think we can get there. Stability comes. Imaging the father means fathers do their work in love. And shockingly, love doesn't mean passivity. Love doesn't mean letting everyone do whatever they want. Love means leading them to Christ. And sometimes that means not letting everyone do whatever they want. Leading your children to Christ means, at at many times in their lives, spanking. And wifey may not like it. Um, It might mean being hard on the one she likes the best. (laughs) It It might mean being hard on the one you like the best. And I know we all have our, all our children the same. I know that we, we say that. But there is a sense in which there are some that, as leaders, you need to be aware, men, of how everyone is loving each other. How are you going to love your home? The work that you do in it is going to be hard work. It's not always going to be popular work. It's going to be work that at times make you feel like the loneliest human being in the world because the one person that's always on your side may not be on your side because of something. Are you able to love in your work? Because when we boil all of the Father's work down, it all comes down to love. And it's a humbling thing. We don't know why He loves us. We really don't. There's no verse, there's no theology that tells you why the Father loves you. Isn't that weird? You would think there'd be a verse we can turn to. The only, I mean, the only thing we can think of is the Father loves us because we're in the Son. But even before we were in the Son, He loved us. How is that possible? I don't know. I barely know what love is. How am I supposed to know why the Father loves us? I don't know. But the humbling thing is that all this work starts there. It doesn't start with trying to get to be the head of your home and trying to grab authority. 
It starts with you loving them enough that you would have a plan for them. Do you love them enough? That's humbling. That's something I was struggling over this week, looking at our Father in heaven. All right. Well, let's pray. We're already pretty far over. I'm sorry. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your graciousness and love for us. We don't understand it, but we're thankful for it. We pray for your blessing over this time we have as we go into the into the service, especially as we take uh, of the elements that your uh, graciousness would pour down on us. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.